What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. I'm your host, Dr. Joey, nutrition science PhD and founder of Fit for Life Academy. Guys, I just finished recording my newest favorite episode about hypertrophy specifically with Dr. Mike Ezretel. Mike is somebody who I've been following in the industry and have looked up to for a very long time. And I decided to reach out to him to have him on the podcast because honestly, it's an honor for me to have the opportunity to speak to somebody like him. Um, in my opinion, he is the best person when it comes to speaking about hypertrophy in a very nuanced but simple fashion as well. Mike is fantastic at taking very complex topics and breaking them down in very, very simple terms and giving you very actionable and realistic tips and advice for you to implement to improve the effectiveness of your training and of course, build more muscle. Before we get into it, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, all I ask is that you take a second to rate the podcast and leave a review. It helps me a ton and it helps me reach more people with my content. With that being said, let's go ahead and go into the episode. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Mike, what is up, my man? How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, thank you for taking time to be here. You and I were just talking about um, when we met. I think neither of us really remembered the specifics there, which is hilarious. But I appreciate you taking time to be here. First and foremost, I've been following your content uh, for quite some time, man. How long have you been on YouTube? For like over a decade now? Or close to a I decade? I've been on YouTube for about two years, two and a half years. Well, I definitely uh, followed your stuff. I've been on Facebook and on Instagram. Yeah for a much longer time facebook okay. for a decade yes okay okay because i know i've been following your stuff for quite some time and my uncle <laughs> uh, funny shout out to my uncle robert he's probably listening to this when it comes out he's a huge fan of yours and wanted to uh, wanted me to say thank you on his behalf for all of the content oh, that thanks, you put out. Robert. <laughs> um but dude you are for me uh the best when it comes to explaining hypertrophy training in very simple terms for the general public to understand. And a lot of the information that you've put out has informed me um, and has influenced the way that I coach the clients that I work with personally. And so I'm really excited for this opportunity to talk to you and maybe go a little bit more in depth on some specific topics, particularly related to volume when it comes to hypertrophy. Um, one of the questions I always get from clients and people on social media is like, is more always better? And I think that question is really hard to answer with a pretty straightforward um, or short answer, I should say. So I'm excited to go into some nuance there. But before we get into that, do you mind telling everybody a little bit about your background, what you do, who you are, besides being the richest man on the planet? <laughs> oh, I don't like to brag about that, except always. And it's hard to be rich. That's what people don't understand. Every day I dig my way out of my room through piles of money to even see sunlight. Can you imagine how terrible that is? I have the um, same problem. It's tough, <laughs> right? It's just people, just regular people just don't understand. Yeah. You know? When they say more mo money, more problems like that, well, that's not a joke. Um, so other than being fabulously wealthy, I have a PhD in sport physiology from East Tennessee State University. I've been a professor at various institutions for a, mm -hmm. a while now. And I teach a whole lot of stuff. I've taught nutrition. I've taught exercise. I've taught strength and conditioning theory. I've um, been involved in strength and conditioning coaching myself directly. I'm a competitive bodybuilder. Um, I used to do a lot of coaching. I haven't coached in a little while. 
and I'm also the co-creator of the RP uh, Diet Coach and RP Hypertrophy apps through the Renaissance Periodization platform, and I'm a co-founder of that company, and we have a big YouTube, uh, and uh, mostly I just sit in a windowless office that uh, from which I'm speaking to you today, and unless I make cool digital products and information, you know, they, uh, my boss doesn't let me out, and this is a cry for help. <laughs> you know, I was watching your video, um, your leg day routine with Jeff Nippard recently, mm -hmm. and I was poor like, Jeff. yeah, poor Jeff, because I was watching that, I was like, man, I thought I trained hard, but I guess I don't that's really train said. that hard. <laughs> that's what Jeff said as well. That's hilarious, man. That especially on the the one squat machine you have in your gym. I I don't know what it's called. The one where the the pad sits on the back. Um, yes, that is not my gym. My God, I would be much wealthier. That is pure gym in Canada. It's one of the biggest okay. gyms in the world. That would be incredible if that was my gym. That that's like a, a hundred thousand square foot facility they have over there. Uh, yes, the Roger squat. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Jeff decided at one point he didn't want to continue, but we coaxed him into it. We have yeah, a cattle prod good. we bring out all the sessions to make sure people understand that when we're on camera, you're expected to work hard or else. Yeah. So, so realistic question for you personally: How often do you train? that hard and for for those of you listening that don't know what we're referring to this is a video where i think you made jeff do like a triple drop set or something like this on this exercise and it was already the third exercise of the session it was already a pretty long session um and you guys were going pretty much to failure on everything right how often or how frequently do you train that hard we went pretty close to failure on hamstring curls we did not go to failure a single time on hack squats and we didn't go to failure a single time on any of the Roger squat sets. So that hard, I would say I trained. That's the average training session. Well, with the like, I think it was like a triple or a quadruple drop set on the Roger squat. Or you guys were aiming for a particular rep number. Total reps. So it yeah. would take a few mini sets to get those. Yeah. yeah. I think just from a cardiovascular perspective, it's pretty tough as well. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough from a mental perspective. Because your legs and your lungs and your spine, they're kind of like, hey, we don't have to do this, right? It's like the hostage is begging you to stop. And you're like, but we have a mission. And they're like, you know, we can do this, but we're not going to be friends afterwards. And, uh, you know, it's, just, it's a quiet car ride home between you and all of your parts of your body. <laughs> but, uh, you know, generally speaking, I sort of assume that um, training is going to be hard. And I don't hope for it to be easy. And if you assume it's going to be really uncomfortable, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised that it goes very smoothly. I just think that if you psychologically come to the gym with the expectation of, I hope this goes well, like mm -hmm. you're asking for trouble. It's like, obviously the analogy is incredibly strained and, and not uh, remotely honoring the, the true nature of this thing. But I think it's nonetheless, some logic here is like, you know, if you're like going into a war zone as a soldier, it's probably not a good idea to be like, oh, I hope we don't get shot at. Like, you're going to get shot at. That's where you're going. So when you're going yeah. to leg workout or any kind of workout, like, just per, just expect the pain to be grotesque. Once you, like, mentally accept that it's going to be grotesque, you may find that you get exactly what you expected, which, mm -hmm. hey, no big deal. Or you may find it's actually a little smoother than you thought. I just wouldn't recommend anyone to ever be like, oh, I hope this workout goes super smoothly and it's easy. It's like, you don't literally you do not go to the gym to make it easy on yourself because the gym is designed to challenge you it's designed to be painful totally. that's actually how you know you're doing a pretty good job yeah you know what's one of the things that i've learned even in my training and i've been training consistently for a little over a decade now um and the one big thing that i've perhaps benefited from most in the <coughs> past year and a half to two years 
And I thought of this because you were talking about how, as you're getting fatigued, hitting that certain rep number, cardiovascular system's taking a toll, spine is taking a toll. Is the importance of mental focus to maintain uh, technical integrity. And when I say technical yeah. integrity, obviously good form, but also talking about range of motion, talking about intentionally slowing down your eccentrics. Yes. That has been such a game changer for me in my personal training just in the past two years. And I feel like it's one of the most difficult things for newer lifters to really learn as well. What are your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more. I think it's super um, important if you want all the best results to, to go your way, and if you, especially if you want to be safe. One of the reasons that I, I hugely preach that beginners should, their number one focus should be good technique. Mm -hmm. Because once you establish good technique, you can milk that out for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you establish the ability to train hard or you establish the ability to just get the work done, mm -hmm. um, that's nice. But then that can fight against the technique and then it's no longer, um, you're there nominally to do a good job, mm -hmm. but you might not be doing the highest quality job ever. And as a matter of fact, when things get tough, your technique starts to break down mm -hmm. and that simultaneously reduces the stimulus to fatigue ratio of the end of those sets and also notably increases the fatigue. And I think there's a, or sorry, notably increases the probability of injury. And I think there's a, a very easy way to keep this in mind. Why are you there? Mm -hmm. So take an example of your leg pressing and you could just move the weights up and down and just kind of cut the technique, like cut the range of motion short a little bit toward the last couple of reps because you have misconstrued the mission. You think the mission is I need to get 12 reps because that's what my RP hypertrophy, you know, app says. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But that's similar to going on a date and thinking I need to survive two hours with this person. Like, yes, that's also true. You don't want to die. And it's not nice to just leave halfway through a date. But aren't you there to get to know the person and maybe have some fun? Isn't that the number one reason you showed up? It's like, okay, got it. So how's the analogy spread to training? It's like, well, why are you leg pressing? It's like to stimulate muscle growth in the quads while being safe. Oh, that's right. And isn't there a technique slowing the eccentric, taking a nice little pause, focusing on the quads and doing the best job you can all the way from start to finish that guarantees that? Yes. And what's more important, that or the number 12? Can you imagine doing the most immaculate set of leg presses anyone's ever seen? You hit 11 on your racket, and you're like, dude, good job. He's like, no, nah, man, I'm supposed to hit 12. That was a wasted set. You're like, I, I don't think that's true. Whereas yeah. the other alternative is like, someone does the worst technique leg press set ever. And you're like, you're trying to walk away. You're trying to drake them. You're trying to not even look in their direction. And they're like, hey, you're like, me? They're like, yeah, you. You liked that set of 12? Wasn't that impressive? You're like, no, no, it wasn't. He's like, but I got 12. It was what I was supposed to get. That's nice. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think people in the midst of pain lose track of why they're there because the pain makes you focus on the number and you tell yourself like just get through 12 just get through 12 and you're good you're not there to get through it you're there to get into it and that means do every single rep the right way and as it gets tougher do it even more right so that when you finish 12 or however many reps you get every single thing is quality period yeah no that's a fantastic response and you know you brought up the idea that technical integrity tends to kind of go to shit as fatigue increases, especially as you're getting near failure on an, on a particular exercise, right? So even like 
in the specific set, we're not even talking about set to set, um, people tend to speed up their reps, especially as they're getting near failure. People tend to cut range of motion a little bit shorter, right? One of the things that I'm really big on with my clients is standardizing range of motion, especially for beginners, like not talking about length and partials or anything like that, but like, hey, if you're going to do an RDL, try to get to the same point on every single repetition, right? So for somebody who's listening to this, who's perhaps newer and really wanting to optimize their training, when we say learn good technique, what are some of the variables they should be focusing on there? Because oftentimes that word technique gets confused with the word form and they're not the same thing. Yeah. I used to use the term form and then I worked with a lot of weightlifters and weightlifting coaches. Uh, and they just told me that that's not a thing and I just, just call it technique. And I was like, okay, so they just start calling it technique. Um, yeah. Form is very difficult to find exactly. That's like a yeah. bro term that may or may not mean something in actuality. Yeah. So t- technique is how your body is moving through space and how the implement is moving as well. The implement being the handles of the machine or the dumbbells or the barbell plus your body. And the, the movement matters. And so there are a couple of technique universals, as I like to describe them, mm-hmm. for especially for muscle growth training. One is to make sure to move in such a pathway or arc that allows the target muscle to be the primary mover. And mm-hmm. there's sort of a good example for this is if you squat relatively straight up and down, that's a lot of quads. Mm-hmm. If you squat down and then you let your butt shoot back up and then kind of good morning the weight, that's actually not a lot of quads and it's a lot more glutes and hamstrings and lower back. Yes, you squatted the same distance from point A to point B, but you mm. weren't exactly using the muscles that you're supposed to be using, mm. which again, pre, you know, it sort of screws over our first thing that we talked about was like, you're there to train your quads, right? Like the squat is the quad movement. You're like, yes. So why are you doing it in a way that's escaping the quads? Like, okay, that's bad. So first of all is general pathway that uses the muscles. Second of all, a consistent range of motion, ideally one that puts the muscle under a very uh, distinct loaded stretch, and also one that goes through most of the range of motion of that muscle's capability. We could talk about this. There's very, very esoteric things now, length and partials and stuff like that, which are great, but um, mostly it's just accomplishing roughly a full range of motion. Another one is controlling every phase of the movement, so especially the eccentric phase, because it's very easy for people to just dump the squat bar and then rock it back up and yeah. then dump it again and rock it back up. The thing is, the lengthened portion, lengthening portion, lengthening contractions, the eccentric contractions, the descent of a movement is a very muscle growth promoting. And so you just don't want to miss out on that. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you want it all to count. And if you dump the weight really fast, it increases the probability of injury substantially. So you want to control the eccentric. You want to control the concentric. You may take a pause or you may not. And you want to make sure that, in addition, is that you're stable the entire time. Mm. Uh, You're not wiggling around. And so those are kind of a little preview of some of the standards of good technique. So if you see someone in the gym lifting in such a way that seems to use the muscle they think they're trying to use, getting mostly a full range of motion, especially a deep stretch, the weights are being lifted in a stable manner, controlling the eccentric and the concentric phase, you can absolutely have critical criticisms of their technique. Yeah, you, know, you need to bring your elbows in, or you need to flare. But those tech, uh, technical criticisms are going to be minor. Whereas if someone is 
you know, taking, uh, letting other muscles contribute to the movement vastly disproportionately. They're spastically doing the movement. They're rocking back and forth on their toes, violating the stability understanding. And each rep looks like kind of different. There's not a standardized uh, range of motion for each mm. rep. Then all of a sudden you're like, you know, whatever it is they think they're doing there, they could be doing it a lot better. So I think a lot of people get to debating on specific techniques before they're even capable of demonstrating what a good technique looks like. Yeah, totally. That's a fantastic answer. You know, and it's difficult to answer that question from a theoretical standpoint because a lot of these variables are context specific to the exercise. Right. But I think generalities we can make would be maximizing range of motion as much as possible and choosing exercises that actually allow you to train through a full range of motion. Right. And I think we've talked, uh, not we've, but I've heard you talk about this, for example, like the seated leg curl in theory being better than a laying leg curl. Right. But in many gyms, the seated leg curl machine sucks. It doesn't even let you fully stretch out the hamstring. No. Right. So there goes all the theory. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. But, Maximizing range of motion, controlling eccentrics, putting tension on the target muscle, and as you mentioned, performing the exercise in a fashion with a form that emphasizes that muscle being worked, right? Squat's a perfect example. The more you let the knee travel forward, the more the quad is going to be emphasized. One thing I wanted to discuss here or ask you regarding eccentrics, because the whole slow eccentric thing is something that I've really incorporated into my training a ton from watching your content. And makes a world of a difference like had to reduce load immediately by like 10 to 15 percent um i feel like i get a substantially better stimulus Mm. with less volume i can do two hard sets of rdls and my hamstrings are screaming versus doing like four or five sets and not reaching the same amount of like muscle disruption or pump in the hamstring right and so what i wanted to ask is what do you say to the people Let's say that like your tempo on eccentrics don't matter because the data shows that tempo doesn't matter. Yeah. So the data that shows the tempo doesn't matter is typically an untrained or recreationally trained people trained for 12 to 16 weeks with the measurements of hypertrophy and strength gain so imprecise as to tell Mm -hmm. us only if large chasms exist between the two. We already know that if if you execute some degree of eccentric control, maybe not a ton, you're going to get roughly the same hypertrophic benefits as if you exert a lot of degree of eccentric control. Okay. But what those studies cannot conclude, because they neither measure this nor are the timelines appropriate, is what is the level of fatigue that is being supplied? What is the level of chronic wear and tear that is being supplied? And, uh, you know, if you have to use way more weight, Uh, and expose yourself to way more injury risk and way more wear and tear to the joints. But if you just modify the eccentric, you get the same hypertrophy. However, your risk of injury is much lower and your joint wear and tear long-term is also much lower, which means chronic injury risk is reduced. Then all of a sudden, it's a really big deal. And all these studies are conducted on averages, usually on untrained people who cannot connect to the muscle mentally anyway. If you control the eccentrics in a challenging muscle to grow that you have trouble connecting with and seemingly activating maximally, it can really help you nail that mind-muscle connection. And then for you as an individual, it will result in much more growth. Whereas for the average person, it doesn't matter because most people, like if they bench press, their chest is going to be active just fine. If they go fast, if they go slow, it doesn't matter. But if you're a person who has trouble getting 
into their chest, getting their chest active and their triceps and shoulders blow up from benching when their chest doesn't really, nothing happens, then eccentric control pays even bigger dividends. So what we're mm. trying to do is squeeze the most effect with the least long-term damage and the least acute injury risk out of any one given set. And so we just use the best practices that are available. And thus, if we can do that, my God, we're winning on all fronts. So if you have direct hypertrophies roughly the same in the short term, that's cool. Which is why, like, if someone does relatively quick reps, I'm not mad at them. It works totally great. It's totally yeah. fine. But some of us who want to be lifting weights for years and years to come, some of us who care about even small changes in muscle growth, some of us who have struggled with muscle growth in a particular muscle and the usual stuff doesn't work, then we care about details. It's similar to people on the bro side of things that anytime I post anything remotely complex on social media about training theory, there's inevitably some idiot gets in there and is like, it's not that complicated, just train and eat. I just want to dude, shut up. Stop reading things. It's hurting your brain. Just go stare at a wall or throw poop at your dog outside. Whatever it is you do for a hobby, stop thinking. A lot of times it's easy to say just eat and train if you have amazing genetics, take tons of steroids, and everything just works. What yeah. if it doesn't? And it doesn't It doesn't work even for Olympians. I mean, this is not meant as a personal affront remotely, right? But because, um, you know, I'm all weak muscles compared to this person. But Brandon Curry, Mr. Olympia, uh, back uh, just a few years ago, has very unimpressive calves related to the rest of his body. Mm -hmm. Would you tell him just eat and train? Don't you think he's already doing that? He's a monster. He's one of the biggest yeah. people I've ever seen in my life in, in real life. He's just a cartoon character. But he will be the first person, no doubt, to tell you that, like, when you struggle with developing a certain muscle, you want to know all the little features, too. Yeah. And it's it's another analogy real quick. is like the super hot guy at school. You ask him how to talk to girls. He's like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Just talk to him. Like, shut up. I wish I was 6'3 and beautiful. Not all of us were made like that. I might need some more tips. So people who try to oversimplify stuff, and even if it's research-backed, there are more nuances to the folks that really care about growing, that really care about long-term growth without injury, and that have muscles that just refuse to grow. Do you, do you have any Do you have any muscle groups that like are just a real pain in the butt for you? Do you have any? Yeah, my cats. Yeah, right? Cavs is for so many people. And when you tell people, like, yeah, just eat and lift, it's like, I have been. And look at these things. I need more. And sometimes things like deeper eccentric control, things like length and partials can be that little switch that really helps and makes a big difference. Yeah. I always wonder from, like, a genetic standpoint why some muscles are so resistant to growth compared to others, even in, this, in the same person, right? Like, for me, yeah. naturally, any pulling movement deadlift, pull-ups, rows, they kind of just progress. Like I don't have to put that much effort into it. Yep. Um, and it's funny because my pressing movements naturally suffer a lot more. My squat relative to my deadlift is several hundred pounds weaker. And I think part of it is like anatomically, I have really long arms, I have big lats. So I'm naturally gifted at deadlift. But the funny part is that I put like twice as much effort into yeah. my lower body pressing movements relative to my pulling movements, I cannot deadlift for three months and deadlift and hit a PR. It's always there. Very strange. Um, it's weird, man. The, the, even just like within the same person, how different muscles can react or respond so differently to a very similar stimulus. Yes. Which is why anytime you want to have your best results, you have to get into the nuances. Mm -hmm. If you have only one trick up your sleeve, which is eat a lot and train hard, 
that's going to make you overall very jacked. And it's going to be 90% of the, the whole thing. But the muscles on your body that weren't destined to be the best genetic responders, yeah. they're not going to look their best. And what are you going to do? Yell at them more in the mirror? you got to have some other ideas about how to work things out. A lot of times people will judge other lifters and their knowledge, especially other coaches, social media influencers, mm -hmm. based on their physiques. And on the one hand, that's a really good thing because like, I gotta, I gotta know that you know something, man. Yeah. If you look completely untrained, why would I believe you? But on the other hand, in another sense, the person who has worked the hardest and has tried the most stuff and has gotten the least good results because mm -hmm. their genetics aren't great, that's the person that might know the most. Yeah. Because if you, get coached by them and you have better genetics than they do, everything they tell you to do is going to be unbelievable. And you're going to go, how do you know how to do all this stuff? Because I had to earn every yeah. single thing. Like if someone was born into wealth, like billions of dollars of inheritance, what are you going to ask them about how to make money? They, they knew nothing about it. But if you ask someone who maybe has a net worth of $100,000, but they emigrated from Bangladesh and worked their way up, they're going to know a lot about how to make money and they're a better person to ask. So it's always a tricky thing when people give generalities, even when they're jacked. It's like, yeah, but how much did you struggle? And if you got like, I have a really impressive, relatively speaking, chest and triceps. And to be honest, those are the muscles I might know the least about how well to train. It's like, it's like you're back in your deadlift. Like I benched 300 in high school. I benched, you know, I benched 315 for 10 when I was in college, then at 315 for 15. It just kept going up. It is nothing I could do that wasn't going to grow my chest and triceps. Yeah. So when people ask me how to do chest and tricep stuff, a lot of times I'd just be like, here are my ideas. I just might not be the best person to ask because I've never really struggled in that department. It's so funny, man, because whenever I make, so most of the content that I make is related to nutrition and overall developing healthy habits, because most of the people, like the audience that I really cater to is uh, unhealthy adults that are just simply looking to Do they know that? You know, like, they, you know ahead, they, they know you call them that? Um, I'm just kidding. Maybe, you know, maybe after watching adult. this episode, they're like, oh my God, I'd follow Dr. Joey. He said I'm an unhealthy adult. <laughs> But just mainly people, you know, who maybe have like 30 or 40 pounds to lose, who have elevated blood lipids, blood sugar, et cetera. And they're looking for lifestyle modification to improve overall health, right? And I focus a lot more on nutrition, healthy habit formation, et cetera. But I often make videos related to hypertrophy because I enjoy it, right? I enjoy talking about these things. And I feel like sure. I have some knowledge from listening to you, from working with people during my PhD. But inevitably, people always make the funniest comments, man. So whenever I post... Um, something related to back workouts. And I post videos of me doing like weighted pull-ups with an additional 40 or 50 pounds or doing deadlifts with 500 plus pounds. Always some positive feedback. Today, I posted a video with my three favorite quad exercises for hypertrophy and how to perform them, being leg extensions, hack squats, leg press, uh -huh. and specific technique changes to make it more or to make it more effective for the quad specifically. Uh -huh. First comment I get one minute in is, why would I listen to you? You don't even have quads. I'm like, oh, Hit yeah. me right where it hurts. Why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's the wrong attitude because another way to phrase yeah. that is why would I get the opposite comments? Like, why would I listen to you? You were like, I looked back on your profile. You've been jacked forever. You're clearly on steroids. Who, who cares what you say? But I have huge quads. Doesn't that mean something? <clears throat> so it, it, it's one of those things that you never can win. And I will never say win. the people that comment things like that on social media, um, like, why would I listen to you too? These aren't like, um, 
these are people having a real bad time in their own head, man. Like, how often do you go on other people's social media just to talk smack? I mean, like, never. I've done it maybe like once when I was like 15 years old or something. Yeah. Like, never. It's just a crazy idea. So, a lot of times when people kind of worry about negative comments, uh, the people making negative comments, they're, they're, trust me, they're having a lot more trouble with life than you are. No, totally. And to give them, uh, I guess, a little bit of grace, I think part of it comes to from very, unrealistic standards of what's actually achievable when you first start lifting. I remember when I, so I started lifting here and there in high school. And then when I started college, um, I was like, okay, now it's time to get serious. I'm going to get as big as possible. And I seriously thought starting college at 18, that by the time I was 20, I was going to be massive. Yeah. And I was massively disappointed. <laughs> sure? And then when I was 20, I was like, okay, maybe 21 by the end of my senior year and 10 years later, and I'm still like not even close to where I ideally want to be. Right. And I think sure. Carter is just like very unrealistic expectations of what's achievable. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, a lot of times uh, people will comment about various pros and be like, well, yeah, with steroids, like, no, no, no you have no idea. Drug free. <laughs> that person would be bigger than you if you were all on steroids, all the steroids in the world. And it's just, you just, a lot of it is you got to do it yourself, not the steroids. That's not a good idea in most cases, but you got to try and, and go on that journey of growth. And you may be yeah. very, very humbled. You may be encouraged, but you also may be humbled. And then you get a real appreciation for like how big real big is. Like mm -hmm. I've uh, talked to Nick Walker, you know, who's a top mm -hmm. Olympian and seeing his arms in real life, like, changes you man you're like i don't even lift i have 20 inch muscular arms and i was t talking to nick walker and I, I walked away from that conversation concluding that i do not lift weights i merely pretend to lift weights and you know someone like, i'll be on the plane i'll be like dude your arms are really big and i just want to be like have you ever seen nick walker i'm nothing <laughs> you know so there's there's always somebody that is going to humble you and so uh i think one of the better mentalities that i've come across is you just got to look at yourself yesterday as the reference frame and you can look to others as inspiration but yeah. not as expectation because you could just be a lot better than them and just whiz by and then you have no one to look up to or yeah. you could just never in a million years look as good as they do what are you learning from that i would say not much i would say just do your very best learn as much as you can set your yesterday's physique as the standard and try to go one inch ahead the other thing is you can only go a little bit ahead at a time anyway <laughs> I think it's a little strange when people make like super long-term, very detailed goals. Like I want to weigh 198 pounds by the time I'm 27 years old. Like really, how do you know any of that is going to be the case? Just do your best, grow a little bit, see what you learn, try to improve. And then you'll very soon see how the trend line looks and maybe get a more realistic idea of kind of where that's headed. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode.
Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Yeah. You know what I've been thinking when you, when you mentioned that um, it was crazy to see somebody like Nick Walker in person, how big his arms are. So going to the Olympia in the Arnold, but mainly the Olympia was my first experience really seeing uh, massive bodybuilders in person. And you know what I was most, um, what's the word? Uh, Taken aback by? Yes. So I'm 6'5". I didn't know most bodybuilders are like 5'5". Five, five. And I was yeah, like, oh my, my God, height. this is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> These losers. <laughs> yeah. Bodybuilders are shorter than expected. Yes. Yeah. And then... And strongman competitors are so big they make bodybuilders look small but then they have you ever seen brian shaw in real life i love brian shaw yeah it's crazy right mm -hmm. it's not a human being anymore because you're you're like you know how um like if uh, if i remember we uh, we were traveling with our dog and there was like a, a sculpture of a horse she'd never seen anything that big she was like really confused. That was my first time seeing World Strongest Man competitor. I was like, I know it's shaped like a human being, but I've never seen something that was 6'8", 440 pounds. Yeah. I thought I was jacked. I thought pro bodybuilders were jacked. There's levels to this. It was wild. Yeah. It's funny seeing him uh, raise the, the winner's hand um where like his hand is like not even past the shoulder and the guy's hand like way above his head and they, every time i see that i'm like man they they have to understand that this is just pure comedy like <laughs> yeah it's like if brian shaw's giving you a trophy you're like can i get somebody smaller in here yeah, please yeah, yeah. this is offensive yeah it's like the biggest bodybuilder looks tiny compared to brian I love um anyways to talk a little bit more about hypertrophy because i i was thinking about this while you were saying it regarding uh the importance of like a slower eccentric because you know i i want to know your thought on this because when it comes to being as effective for hypertrophy as perhaps training a little bit faster right or using a little bit more weight not being as controlled um one of the main things i preach is like man since i've been training this way i used to have a little bit more of a powerlifting background prior mm -hmm. to Same focusing here. a little bit more on bodybuilding and my left shoulder has always been in pain um, ever since I had like a, a relatively mild slash somewhat serious injury bench pressing and I never got it checked out, kind of just rehabbed it, doing some exercises and just got back to benching. Mm. But every month or so it kind of flares up. Um, and it's really prevented me from progressing because if one week of your training every single month just isn't the best, that's a good amount of work you're missing out on. Right. Yeah. And ever since just dropping my ego and really training slowly and doing exercises that don't bother my shoulder, my left hip is another one. Um, I have never felt this good, right? So I know that you've talked about this of like risk of injury, the data may not be fully there, but just anecdotally, when you control stuff, the roof range of motion, your joints feel good. You don't lift this heavy weight, so it doesn't hurt as much either. You can recover better, fatigue is lower. It just seems like a like a win-win, right? And the question I wanted to ask when it comes to slowing reps down, let's say even if you use the same amount of weights, right? Let's say you do random number, 300 pounds on a deadlift for 10 reps uh -huh. with a fairly non-controlled eccentric. Uh -huh. And now let's say you still use 300 pounds and you slow down the eccentric substantially and you only get six reps. Would you say both of those are relatively equal in terms of hypertrophic stimulus? Is one better than the other? 
I would say they're relatively equal, except one is substantially safer. And if you're struggling connecting with a part of your body, you'll connect with it much better if you do it slower. Um, and long-term wise, I think it's better for wear and tear. Um, but on a pure hypertrophic set for set comparison, what matters is how much weight are you lifting and do you push the same proximity to failure? The reps auto cancel because it's not even true to say that sets of five have a meaningfully different hypertrophic yield than sets of 30, even yeah. if you change the load. Even if the load is different, set per set, the hypertrophic yield is the same. So if the load is the same, but the cadence is different, we know from tons of studies that the rough, short-term muscle growth yield is going to be about the same. The eccentric controlment stuff, that's more for the long-term. Yeah. But if another way to put it is, if I can get the same short and long-term, well, I'm sorry, if I can get the same short-term muscle gain, mm -hmm. but with a meaningful theoretical reduction in injury risk, and a meaningful experiential reduction in pain to the joints, why wouldn't I? It's kind of like you, you get ice cream with your friend and he just gets the cone, but you have a napkin and then the cone. And he's like, what's the napkin for? You need help eating your ice cream? And you're like, no, you idiot. It's for the ice cream not spilling on my fingers. He's like, well, that's not a big deal. Like, I guess. He's like, how much did you pay for the napkin? You're like, it was free. So it's obviously the right answer to take it because he has zero downsides and only upsides. And yes, the upsides are small, but in the grand scheme, it's a big deal. One of the reasons why I started training with slow eccentrics or slower controlled eccentrics is because I noticed that I could use lighter weights and get the same muscle growth effects. And then I noticed that my acute exposure to injury risk was lower. Mm -hmm. And I'm pushing 40 I'm 240 pounds with veins everywhere and glute detail and stuff. I can hack squat 600 pounds for sets of 10 to my standard of depth, which is like my butthole touches the platform. I don't need anything more to make that riskier. When yeah. you're strong enough, like you know with your deadlifting, anytime you pull on 500 pounds, there is a non-zero chance your ass is going to break into pieces. Yeah, yeah. And if you can just reduce that by some margin, you're just buying yourself a high probability of more years ahead of you of lower injury, high productive lifting. Because a lot of times people do this hand-waving effect, even folks in the scientific community of, of uh, resistance training, they'll say, someone will say like, isn't taking extra time to warm up hypothetically going to make you lower injury risk? Isn't slowing the eccentrics hypothetically going to lower injury risk? Isn't taking a pause at the uh, bottom of the portion on something like a bench press going to hypothetically lower injury risk. And they'll say this weird thing where they say, well, the injury risk is already so small. Like, well, yeah, but don't ideally want it to be zero? And yeah. I totally understand their point if there's all these downsides. Like if it's like you reduce hypertrophy by 10%, but injury risk by 5% by slowing things down. Well, yeah, but there, well, now we have a conversation because like, look, you're paying the cost. But if there's no downside other than you have to focus on slowing the reps down, why wouldn't you reduce injury risk? And and this kind of thing seems like it's a wash of a discussion until you get hurt. When you know that, that you've gotten, Joe, you got hurt in the gym before? Yeah. Well, yeah, you just said with the bench press. It's this feeling you get as soon as you hear that pop or that click or that jolt of pain and you rack the weight. It's the feeling of, God damn it, why is time travel not real yet? Why can't I go back and fix this? Yeah. And then someone could say, what would you have done differently? And you go, anything I could have. Because once you get hurt, it's such an awful, terrible, annoying thing. 
And if yeah. someone's like, well, if you had done slower eccentrics, you could have maybe multiplied the risk of injury by 0.5. Yeah. Not 0.5 of a very low number, still seemingly low number, but a relative risk reduction of 50%, I'll take it. I'll take it because I've been hurt before and I don't want it to happen. And for the last several years of my training career, I haven't gotten hurt. Jesus, God, please listen to that and don't, I'm not, uh, please continue to keep me safe. But um, it's because in part I'm trying to still impose as much stimulus to the muscles while doing slow eccentrics, while doing good technique, while doing careful warming up. Because, you know, like I'll get in the gym and I'll start uh, warming up for leg press and I'm like, I got to do three leg press warm ups, but like, I don't really feel pretty good. You know, like one of the warm ups I do is, is called a potentiation set. It's taking basically your working weight and doing just two to four reps with it, yeah. racking and then waiting and then doing 15. Sometimes, like after two reps of potentiation, I'm like, dude, I could just keep going and crank yeah, this yeah, set yeah. out. But then I'm always like, Isertel, shut up, rack the weight and rest, you idiot. Because it's probably going to go super well and you're going to get away with it. But what if you feel that little pop in your glute on rep number seven? Who are you going to blame? There's only one guy in the gym, bro, and that's you. Yeah. So it's a bit more compelling maybe when you put it like that. I'm going to I'm gonna have you between my ears now when I do that because I do that all the time. Where too, I like I like to do a couple reps with like my working set before doing my first working set. Uh-huh. And if it feels good, I just keep going. Because I'm like, yeah. why wait another couple minutes? Like, I'm just going to keep right. going. Yeah. Uh, but Imagine be, if you, you hurt rep- yourself. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. I would say undoubtedly it always feels better when I do stop and Definitely. then get my first set. Yes. It feels better. But imagine you hurt yourself. You're going to drive home thinking, wow, Joey, two minutes, two minutes you yeah, saved yeah, yeah. yourself and you cost yourself two months of yeah. rehab, a slow clap. Amazing. And it's like shortcuts. If you're there for maximum results for the long term, shortcuts aren't the way to do it. Yeah. You know, like if, if you're an airline pilot, and you've gone through most of your status checks before takeoff, you're not like, ah, all the other systems are probably fine. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah, yeah. three more minutes of playing with the switches and all is well. It's worth it. I promise. Mike, do you have um, just a ton of these analogies from, like, years of doing interviews, or do you just think of these on the fly? Because they're fantastic. <laughs> Almost all of 98% of them are on the fly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, man. no, I don't have that good of a memory. I don't even know what I ate for breakfast this morning. <laughs> the ice cube analogy with the napkin is beautiful, man. I don't oh, know thank how you so much. Like <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I have no idea how it works either. But see, it just makes sense, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. To me, a lot of these ideas are so emotionally salient mm-hmm. because I've done them all wrong and I hated myself for yeah. it. It's like why? It's like it's like watching someone do downhill like mountain biking without a helmet. You're just like, really, man. Really? Your brain isn't important to you? And they're like, I don't know, man. I've talked to people like, it makes my head hot. Like, dope. I want your wife to see you in the ICU and you'll never speak again and be like, his head was hot. It's okay. It makes sense. Like, it's worth it. Really? Looking looking cool is more important. Of course. Of course. You know, the thing that people don't understand about injury, at least this has been my experience, is that often even after recovering from the injury, the pain can be recurrent, Right. And especially if you've had like more than just a very minor injury. And that's what I was saying regarding my shoulder. It's like for the past three months, I love bench pressing because it looks cool. And I actually get a pretty good stimulus with bench pressing. I feel my chest work really well. But it's just like every three months, it kind of just stagnates because my shoulder starts to hurt. And I was like, man, this is the first time like for a three month period for the past three months, I have not benched, been doing mainly exclusively dumbbell work, been doing a lot of machine work. 
it feels amazing, right? And then it, it just requires like dropping your ego and not doing the things that feel uncomfortable. And the one way that the, the main thing that made me realize how much better my shoulder is feeling is that one of my favorite exercises to do used to be weighted dips. And since that shoulder injury for years, I have not been able to do weighted dips. And these past two weeks, I've been able to do weighted dips very deep with little weight, but no pain and it feels so good. And I'm like, maybe I'm onto something with like not doing the bench press if every couple of months it's causing pain, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, 100%. Another, there's worse news actually, unfortunately. Not only does it often not really feel right or give you a, a, a bit of pain mm -hmm. later on, it is a statistical certainty, certainties with high probability, multiple research studies have confirmed that the probability of injuring uh, a part of your body again Mm -hmm. if you've heard it before, is higher than in any given other part of your body that's mm -hmm. never been hurt. Now, there are two reasons for that. One, the same crappy genetics for shoulders or glenohumeral joint design or the same stupid training practices, most people just continue to have and continue to do. But it's worse. Um, the way your body heals injuries, as uh, basically designed by evolution, is to the good enough not to mm -hmm. the flawless. Like your body was designed to get you past about age 25, yeah. get you some reproduction going, and then it just kicks you out. You're just a vessel for DNA and your DNA is already in your kids. So you're good. So as long as your body kind of duct tapes your injuries in a certain sense, you know, like bones, it's very good about completely healing and then, and then they don't break. Connective tissues, muscles, it kind of just throws some scar tissue on there. Mm -hmm. And that has a much higher chance of re-injuring. Um, so... It, not getting injured for the first time is important. So mm -hmm. if you think there's all these people walking around who are talking about, you know, um, very good technique and slow eccentrics, a lot of those people are the people that have been hurt before. And what they want to do is scream to the, at the top of their lungs to everyone who hasn't been hurt yet, don't do what I did. Just start doing things right right now. I've had mo most of my body injured at some point, but the muscles I've never hurt I still do with excellent technique as much as I can and slow eccentrics so that it never happens because I've yeah. learned my lesson. And I think that's a really big deal, you know? Yeah. And the funny part is you said that, you know, injury risk is relatively low, but you talk to most gym bros and everybody's been injured. Well, yeah, you put in thousands and thousands of hours, yeah. low risk becomes near certainty. Exactly. You know, like your chance of getting struck by lightning is insanely low. Do you go running around with a fucking metal <laughs> pole sticking out of your hand during a thunderstorm? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you'll probably be fine. Like, hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm good to go. So, yeah. Okay. So to switch this up a little bit, cause I, I'm going to ask you a pretty big general question here and then we'll talk a little bit more nuanced. Um, you know, when we talk about hypertrophy, some of the real important variables, we talk about technical integrity, but you can't leave volume and intensity out of the equation. Right. Mm -hmm. And those two variables, volume and intensity have a very close knit relationship, right? Mm -hmm. There's people that say or think that just more volume is always better. And obviously more volume will come at some expense of, it, of intensity, right? Because you can't train as hard as humanly possible and do 50 sets in one session. And the opposite is also true, right? You can't train incredibly hard with a crazy amount of volume either, right? So yeah. kind of an inverse relationship there too. So what is the general relationship between volume intensity as it relates to hypertrophy? And then I want to talk about some nuanced situations or how can people really figure out what an appropriate amount of volume is for them? Yes. Excellent question. So 
in general sport training, volume and intensity are multipliers of one another. And there is a total number, hypothetical value, of your body's limit of tolerance of stress. Mm -hmm. So that if you take a certain given intensity and you multiply it by a certain given volume, you get maybe halfway to that number. If you keep the volume the same and you increase the intensity again, you get closer to that number. If you increase both again, you might go over that number and then your body cannot recover because it's too much stress. So at some point, everything's kind of a trade-off to everything else. It's, it's, it's similar to the idea of you have uh, hobbies and you have your career. Can you do maximum both? No, that's insane. Why? Because just like the body has a stress limit, the week has a certain number of hours in it. Plain and simple. You're either working or you're doing your hobbies. You can't do both at the same time. Unless you check your iPad, Microsoft Excel, while downhill skiing. You're like, hold on, I'm on a meeting. You're on a Zoom call while skiing. That's a good idea. No one's ever going to die trying that. So anytime you are close to your body's limits of recovering from stress, you have to understand that because of volume and intensity multiply each other, that you can't just push them both into infinity and expect everything to work out totally fine. That's just not how it works. So you have to have a bit of a respect, maybe even a reverence, that the body is a finite system. And it is a system in which large increases in volume and or intensity at one time increase stress so much that that can result in injury itself. So mm -hmm. I would say it's good to be ginger about it. Now, from the perspective of hypertrophy, I actually take a not such a unique view. I guess not a lot of people share this view, but um, this is a view that myself and I think Eric Helms, Dr. Eric Helms, have independently arrived at because we've talked about it before and he's posted about it before. I was like, right on. Yeah. And it's the view that uh, we have to treat intensity and volume as categorically different variables. They're not, they ha absolutely have a trade-off to each other, mm -hmm. um, but they're designed for a different thing. So intensity is part of the equation that looks at the quality of each unit of your training. Mm -hmm. So if you take a given set, that's a unit of training, right? Mm -hmm. It's a unit of volume, technically. You want to first make sure that your technique is excellent. Secondly, you want to make sure that your intensity, let's call it the load, is appropriate. Third, you want to make sure that your reps and reserve, relative effort similar to intensity, mm -hmm. is also appropriate. Now, you have taken that little box called the working set and you've shaded it in. It's shaded green. It's good. Volume is how many of those boxes you mm -hmm. use. And so it's a categorically different level of analysis. Uh, intensity exists under the hierarchy of volume because if you think of them as a trade-off, they absolutely do trade off. But the number one thing that we want to do in training is make sure we have quality first, mm -hmm. quantity second. And because we only want a quantity of high quality things. You can always get a quantity of low quality things. Like someone's like, hey, like I want diamonds. You take a bunch of crappy, unrefined black diamonds and you dump it on the desk. Yes. You're like, whoa, how much money is this? Like it's 50 cents. You're like, what? That's exactly what I had in mind. And they're like, oh, let's start with quality. And they give you one tiny diamond. Like how much is it? They're like $50. You're like, 
okay, how many of these can I have? And they're like, well, how much money do you have? You're like, ah, yeah, good point. I got to get a butler to sell one of, one of my Lamborghinis. So uh, it's usually good in many things, definitely in training, to approach it, as Dr. Eric Helms has said, as I have waved the flag many times, quality first, quantity second. It's like if you go to a restaurant, you want a nice hamburger that tastes great. And if you want two or three, you just pay more money and they bring you two or three. But you don't want to be in a situation where like, hey, let's get, I need like 10 hamburgers. And someone's like, okay, how much money do you have? You're like $10. They're like, well, White Castle it is. Is it good? And your friends are like, if you're drunk or high enough, it's great. (laughs) Otherwise it's awful. And then so because we want quality first, that makes the discussion of volume and intensity a bit simpler because we handle them one at a time. Um, it's uh, another quick analogy is like, you know, you have an, a big, long equation to solve and, but it's, it's got parentheses and various points and multipliers handle the stuff in the parentheses first, simplify. Once you've done that, Hey, the rest of the equation looks easy. But if you just look at it all at the same time, you're like, Whoa, what does it all even mean? So for me, it's about first getting good technique second at, you know, through your warm ups. second, selecting an appropriate load. Third, getting close enough to failure to have a robust result. And that's a nuanced conversation in and of itself, but there's kind of a lot of right answers and not a ton of wrong answers there. And then once you know how to do a real good working set, only then do you ask the question of how many sets do. Because here's here's a very uh, fine way to, to put this example. One of my colleagues, super coach at Renaissance Periodization, Dr. James Hoffman, PhD in sport physiology. Him and I have this old running, not joke, but a real story that we, we tell to each other and tell the folks, anyone who will listen to us, really, we beg for people to listen to us. People pass by on the street, no one talks to us. But uh, James will often have clients, uh, or on occasion is, has had clients historically, and I'm sure you've had clients like this before, well, you know, you, you do your intake form and they get back to you and you're like, you know, what typical volumes do you use in your training? Like how many sets of this and that? And sometimes the numbers come back like bonkers numbers. They're like, yeah, I do like 60 sets of quads a week. And 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 Dr. James Hoffman taught me the, the skeptical James eyebrow where he's like, hmm, he does that. What does that mean? That means I want, in the next email he sends back his clients is, send me a video of what your mm-hmm. squats look like. Because when, sometimes it's terrible technique. The load is a okay load, but the reps in reserve are like eight. They just like stop. And then you're like, well, that's not a hard set. No wonder you need 60 sets to do the job. If you yeah. check the quality box first, and that's of course what we do at RP as coaches, we make sure to establish quality first. A lot of times people will be like, yo, I'm doing 10 sets of quads a week and I'm blowing up. I used to do 20 and nothing was happening. It's like, not all sets are the same. Yeah, that's the big deal. That's a that's a a great perspective and a great way of explaining it in terms of using the analogy of the the the, the variable of intensity being more related to the quality of work and volume being more related to the quantity of work. And of course, both of those variables are important, but you have to have quality work before discussing quantity, right? And what I, where I wanted to go with this um, question is. You know, there's two camps of thinking. And I think if we look at the evidence that's available, obviously know which one's perhaps more evidence-based, but there are people who have had incredible results with really low volume training, taking everything to failure and beyond, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are people with a ton of success who strongly believe that that is the optimal way to train, right? And I I believe perhaps uh, your view and and people like Eric Helms, who you mentioned earlier, it's like, no, perhaps we should have sufficient intensity to maximally stimulate muscle growth, 
but not so much intensity to where the amount of work that you're doing is compromised. So you want sufficient intensity, but still be able to do sufficient work because the evidence shows that more work, more, more total quality work is better than less work, right? In terms of total number of sets. Yeah, totally. This is a conversation of what you get when you go to extreme. So if you wanted to do as many sets as possible, you would just assign the reps in reserve at like eight. Mm -hmm. You could do a hundred sets and recover just fine. They're all warm ups. You didn't tell anyone that part. Yeah. Be like, yeah, I'm a volume guy. I've heard people say that before. Like, I love high volume. And you watch them train and you're like, every one of your sets is a warm up dummy. Do you just want to spend more time in the gym for no reason? Yeah. On the other hand, there are people that way over index on intensity. They're like, mm -hmm. every set has to be someone is holding my grandmother with a gun to her head in front of me. And if I don't do another rep, she dies. And you're like, wow, okay, very well. And what ends up happening is the fatigue that mm -hmm. is in, in injected into that workout, the, the stimulus per set is the highest you'll ever have. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In any one given set, you'll grow more muscle going further to failure and beyond failure than you would if you stopped eruption reserve but you get a disproportionate amount of fatigue. If you're doing a low volume program, that doesn't really much matter because you can yeah. recover from so much more, nobody cares. Like if you train only your arms and train them three times a week uh, with you know five sets all the way to failure, you'll get better results than if you do five or even sometimes six sets not to failure. But that's because you're not really pushing your recovery demands that much. If you do a whole body routine, if you're stronger, if you're bigger, if you're more experienced, if you try harder, then all of a sudden training everything to failure so much hurts your ability to do the requisite volume that it's mm. not worth it on the end balance. It's kind of like if you wanted to run as far as possible without getting tired, would you run your fastest? No, that is not a good <laughs> idea. Nobody sprints a marathon. Yeah. So if that's your metric, you got to slow down. Now, does that mean you just walk? Well, yeah, but you just won't get there on time. So there's a trade-off. But usually, the more you push yourself, the more you realize, yes, training close to failure is good. Probably two or three reps in reserve, even one rep in reserve on average, seems to work well. But going all the way to psychotic failure is a great way to train until you start pushing your whole body to its limits and beyond. And then you're going to realize the fatigue is so high that if you just did two or one RIR, you might be able to actually put in more stimulus total because the fatigue would be stopping you less. And that's a, that's a really, really big deal. And I've learned this in my life many times just through my own experience. My first exposure to training was failure training. I got into the Mike Menser hit stuff like crazy. And I was doing everything to failure and beyond. And it was fun. But then my, I was getting so fatigued and I watched my friends get more jacked and strong than me. And they mm. were doing reps in reserve. Um, they were just training for powerlifting. And because in powerlifting, you almost never go to failure. They were getting bigger than me too. And I was like, this is stupid. So yeah. then when I got to my PhD program, funny enough, was the first time I really started training shy of failure. Um, mm. I really pulled back and then I got better results. And I was like, what? I felt better. I felt more recovered. And my muscle growth just progressed for longer. I wasn't exhausting myself nearly as much. And I think a lot of people who say you got to train to failure to get your best results. Mostly they're not, some of them say optimal, they make technical claims like that, but most of them don't mean that. 
a lot of them are just having a lot of fun. Like, yeah. uh, there's, um, uh, what's his name? Jordan Peters, a very jacked bodybuilder from the UK. You know, he used to say, like, train a failure is great, blah, blah, blah. He actually doesn't really say that anymore because he's made his position very clear. He's like, guys, listen, I train the way I do for spirit purposes. I love yeah. it. It's therapy for me. And it works really well. Yeah. Am I claiming it's the best? Nope, because I don't do it for that reason. I do it because it feels awesome. And I got tons of respect for him when he said that because, like, that's just you doing what you're doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people will say like, it's optimal to train a failure and you look at their literature and it's like the literature doesn't say that. Yeah. And then they realize that that's not where they got that idea. They got that idea because it's like they're getting therapy out of it, which I understand. Yeah. It's a very different thing to go in the gym to get therapy versus going in the gym to get your best possible results. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. That's a great answer. Um, and you know, I think it speaks also to the importance of enjoyment with training. Uh, totally. Because if you can, on a regular on a regular basis, amp yourself up and get perhaps better overall quality work if you do go to failure because you just enjoy that way more, mm -hmm. arguably maybe better for that specific person, right? Oh, yeah. What I, what I really wanted to talk about here too, in terms of practicality, because you know, we're talking about enjoyment and perhaps inter-individual differences based off what may be better for one person versus another. Um, because we, we, you know, we have this notion that given sufficient effort, more volume is better, right? And there's a trade-off between how hard you can train and how much you can train. Is it possible to quantify the effect and to throw out some random numbers, let's say you train the leg press at a zero RIR, which is complete failure, and maybe you can do success, random number. Mm -hmm. And now let's say you back off on that intensity and you're training at a eight RIR, uh, sorry, a two RIR, I was thinking RPE, at a two RIR, um, which is still very hard, definitely not failure. And now you can maybe do eight or nine sets. What would be the difference there in terms of effectiveness for muscle growth? So two answers. One is typically if you're pushing most of your body hard, set for set, there's not a notable difference between failure and non-failure conditions. So right. you would probably grow a little bit more muscle doing eight sets than six sets, even though the six sets were all the way to failure. But if your systemic fatigue capacity is not being pushed, going close to failure sometimes has benefits, even if it's a little less volume. So then you're roughly even, but you can't tell because like you said, there's lots of inter-individual differences. 
So my real best answer would be try one for a few months, mm -hmm. track your progress. Try the other for a few months, track your progress. And by progress, I mean, yeah, visual assessment, pictures and stuff, but mostly how your rep strength does, not just on that exercise, but on all of the other exercises that train that muscle. And you'll notice with one of the two of them, many times, one will be superior than the other. Like, dude, I love train a failure, but if I do it, I just stall out on strength after a few weeks and like, mm. that's it. But if I train submaximally, I can go months and get stronger and stronger and stronger. And at some point, if you get a lot stronger submaximally, of course you're bigger. You bench yeah. 225 for 12 versus eight. Consistently, you will. It's just evidence of the fact that you're larger. It's not magic. Strength comes from somewhere. Now, you could notice the opposite, or you could notice that there's no difference. If there's no difference between the two, you're like, yeah, I seem to get the same growth if I go a little bit lower volume, higher relative effort versus higher volume, lower relative effort. Then it's like you have two options. One, do whichever one you like most. Yeah. Or two, if you like them both just the same, periodize them. Do a few months yeah. of one and then a few months of the other. It's, it's nice to have two, two approaches yeah. that both work. But if one of them clearly for a given muscle group in a given time frame seems to be better for you, that's probably the one you should be sticking to. Now, that doesn't mean you automatically rule out the other one forever as a thing that you're stupid and you'll never do again, but at least tentatively say, okay, it seems like when I go closer to failure with slightly lower volume, I seem to get better results. So if you, if you do super, super awesome, let's say you tried two different approaches. You tried one approach where you did three reps in reserve and you adjusted the volume based on your recovery ability week to week to week. The other approach you try is zero reps in reserve, like failure, right? And let's say failure training works better for you. Like you just get better results straight up. You get stronger over time, bigger over time. The proper conclusion there isn't that failure training is the ultimate way for you to train, but between three RIR and zero RIR, you did better with zero. Now, if we look at it as intellectuals, that means the little truth symbol moves closer because we don't know where the truth is, right? It's stochastic, mm -hmm. it's random. It could be here, it could be there, right? Schrodinger's truth cat. We know that that uh, you have three RIR here and zero IR here, and we don't know where the best results are. Yeah. If you test it and zero IR works better, then the best results are probably closer to here than they are to here. Yeah. But closer to here means, why don't you try another experiment where you do two RIR versus failure? You may find that you get the same results and you're like, hmm, interesting. So I got closer to failure than three RIR. That checked enough of the boxes for me to get the same results. Looks like I don't have to go to failure. I would have made the wrong conclusion if I did. Then you try one RIR versus failure. And guess what? Just hypothetical, one RIR gets you the best results you've ever had. Well, then guess what? Now you know so much more about your body than just testing two conditions and being like, that's it. You know, like... In marketing, if you have like one poster and then a slightly different type of poster and you see how many clicks yeah. one gets versus the other, you could say, okay, this one's better. But does that mean it's the ultimate poster? No, which is why split testing, you take that poster that's better, you change each a little bit and then you go and you go and you go and eventually find the, hypothetically the best poster that you could yeah. do. Training is all about learning and trying new things. I would almost never conclude that's it. I found the ultimate way to train for myself. No, 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 no. Yeah. You know more about what you need, but maybe not about the ultimate. Yeah, that's a, a great way to put it. And it, it comes down to experience and really testing things. It, it's difficult because it takes it takes a lot of time to really figure these things out. Um, and these are things that I've been focusing on a little bit more recently. And, and it's really difficult to know, you know, like uh, to wrap, we'll be wrapping up here shortly. But even with my 
personal training, in terms of intensity, the way that I approach it is I kind of allow how I feel on the particular session to dictate the intensity of the session. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, if I'm tired, I don't train hard. But if I'm not as aroused, perhaps maybe it's a two or a three RIR on that particular day, if I'm feeling a little bit better. Maybe it's a little bit closer to one or zero RIR. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that because it doesn't, um, it just makes training more enjoyable and, and kind yeah. of removes the excess. Takes the pressure off. Yeah, of course. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. And here's, here's the, the thing I really wanted to talk about when it comes to volume specifically. I think what's really difficult is for somebody to really understand how much volume is appropriate for them. And why do I bring this up? Because one, the literature continues to show that more volume seems to be better in general, right? Mm -hmm. But I think there's some really good proxies to determine whether maybe you're doing too much or too little, right? And I know you talk about maximal uh, recoverable volume, minimum effective mm -hmm. volume. I'd mm -hmm. love to touch on those in a second. I've been experimenting with this because I have a, a, a close friend of mine who did his PhD at Florida State with me, um, Dr. Chester Sikowski. You might know him or may not know him. Mm -hmm. He's He's, he's uh, said unkind things to me on the internet. Before. I know, I know. He <laughs> We've all done that before. I don't, I don't judge him for it at all. <laughs> I've, dude, it's funny. I've talked to him about that before. I don't understand. I've heard great he's things doing. about him from almost everyone else, though. So yeah. So aside from that, aside from that, which is hilarious, um, <laughs> because we remember those things, right? Um, sure, so sure. We, had, we had a conversation on the podcast a couple of uh, weeks ago, and this is why I was so excited to talk to you as well, because he has a very different view. He has over time decreased his volume and continued to see better results anecdotally, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a bit of an extreme on his perspective. He trains with maybe five or six sets total for most muscle groups. Some are a little bit beyond that, but most- Per session or per week? Per week, right? And he swears, and we've had private conversations about this, that it is the best progress that he's ever made. And his whole- um, his whole philosophy is if this much volume helps me progress objectively in terms of strength and number of repetitions, then this is what's optimal for me, right? And he asked me to give it a try to train with a little bit lower volume. I typically train usually between 12 to 15 sets per muscle per week. The reason why we were talking about this is because I've realized personally that oftentimes when I train the muscle twice a week, um, let's say Monday and Thursday, and I do six or seven hard sets, let's say for my chest on Monday, um, that second session tends to suffer a little bit in terms of performance, right? It's just, I don't feel as fresh. I feel a little bit more fatigued getting into the door. And he was like, what if you did a little bit less volume and you felt fresh at every session? You could train really hard for every session. I was like, makes logical sense. And I've also realized anecdotally when I, let's say go through an eight week mesocycle, where I start with relatively low volume and implement some of your philosophies where every week we're slightly increasing volume. When I have, when I'm at the lower end at the beginning of the mesocycle, which makes objective sense too, I always feel really good. I'm always making really good progress. And then as volume increases, I just feel a little bit less fresh is the best term because I'm not fatigued going to the gym. I'm just not as aroused, not as like ready to go. And so performance is a little bit worse. And he was like, man, just try to drop your volume a little bit and see how it goes. And for a about five or six week period, I dropped my volume to about eight sets per muscle. And I'm not gonna lie, 
from session to session, I was getting a little bit stronger. Now, my whole mind, like I started to think about this and I'm like, what could be going on here? Well, maybe it's the fact that I have less fatigue. So acutely, this may be better, mm -hmm. but I have no evidence to show that it may be better chronically long-term, mm -hmm. right? What are your thoughts on that? How can people determine what the appropriate amount of volume is for them? And is it perhaps a good idea to, to over a short period of time, increase volume to where maybe performance is even slightly hindered in the short term? That's a really good question. So there are, there's a theoretical optimal volume per muscle mm -hmm. cycle for everyone, for every muscle group, every situation. We just don't know what it is, but we know it, it has to exist. And you can be a little bit to the left or right of it and get essentially the same growth. And here's how. If you're slightly underdoing the volume, you're going to be extra recovered. So the quality of every session is going to go up. Mm -hmm. If you are slightly overdoing the volume, the drive of hypertrophic stimulus acutely is going to be higher because it's more volume. But the quality of every session is going to degrade a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that roughly evens out and it ends up being like, that's just about the same amount of growth. Yeah. So plus or minus a little bit just doesn't matter and really can't matter theoretically. Mm -hmm. What we want to avoid in training is plus minusing a lot. So there are two scenarios you want to avoid. One is you train, you're like, okay, low volume times a thousand, let's go. And you train with one set on Monday. And not again until Thursday do you do one more set. On Tuesday, someone comes up to you. They're like, how was your work on a Monday? You're like, crazy, bro. You're like, all right, sweet. Could, did you recover? You're like, absolutely. I actually never got sore. I'm not yeah. tired. I could repeat that work right now. If you wait another two days, that's just you waiting for no reason at all. You could be growing muscle now. So that's an argument that you probably could have done and in the future should do at least a little bit more volume. That would be a big mistake to underdose volume in such an obvious way that you could do more and simply get better. The other mistake on the extreme end is doing so much volume in any given session that you absolutely do not recover for the next one. There are at least two ways to see that you're not recovering. One is you have delayed onset muscle soreness still deeply present in that muscle. You're going to get high quality training with sore quads when you're training. Get, get out of here. Anyone who's claiming that, get, get out of my face. No way. Or your strength hasn't recovered yet and you haven't gotten stronger. Maybe you've gotten a little weaker. And then like, are you really training to get weaker every time? I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. And yeah. if you're always training while chronically still sore, do you really think that's going to get you great long-term gains? The theory just doesn't line up. Of course. So as long as you're doing two things, you're going to be getting your best results. One is training yourself hard enough that it's challenging for you to recover by the next session. But two, training not so hard or not so much rather, not so many sets that you uh, cannot recover by the next session. You, you don't necessarily want to push that line like, all right, Wednesday night is the first time my pecs aren't sore. Perfect. That's great. But it could even be like Tuesday night or Wednesday morning mm -hmm. or healed. But if it's like you train Monday and by Monday night, you're objectively ready to go again and you don't go until Thursday, you're probably making a mistake. Yeah. And so uh, to, to, to Chester's point, what he maybe did is kind of pare down his volume to where he's still getting a substantial challenge, mm -hmm. but was 
uh, improving his recovery a little bit, giving that little extra buffer. And for him, that was amazing. Whereas yeah. before, he might have just been just under-recovering, just not enough to where he's spending all this time and effort in the gym. And he's just got not much to show for it because he's not growing much because the body's like, I can't do this. I can't recover from this much. So really, the way to individualize this is start at a given low level of volume that you can recover from for sure for the next time you train consistently. And then if you feel after a week or two that you're like, man, I could easily add a set to bicep curls mm -hmm. and definitely still recover comfortably for next time, add it, see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And then if that happens again, add it again, see how it goes. After a while, you're going to add enough sets to where you're like, nope, that was too much. I cannot yeah. recover from this. This is excessive. And then you've kind of walked from your minimum effective volume to your maximum recoverable, and then you understand something about yourself. So for example, if you say to yourself after a lot of experimentation, okay, generally, Anything under 10 sets per week, or let's say five sets per week for quads, is just not is just not enough. I don't care how hard the sets are. But anytime I try to go much over 15 sets of quads per week, that's not the right answer either. Yeah. Look, at least you know the right answer to training is somewhere between 5 and 15. Probably the average is somewhere between 7 and 13. Hey, that's great. Because if someone tells you, hey, listen, I got this quad program, full body program plus quads that that that's, starts at 25 sets per week and goes to 40, you can be like, dude, that, yes, I comfortably can tell you that it's not for me. <laughs> it's just not. And um, that is really, really important knowledge. So there is some wiggle room and it's important yeah. to do what Chester did and kind of just, just play with that to see where that range is for you to see where you get the better quality, but understanding that there's still a range and that like, if you told him like, Oh yeah, five sets is great. Right. He'd be like, right. He'd be like, all right, try two. He'd be like, come on, man, two's not yeah. enough. So we don't want to just go to extremes. If we're just, we do our best. And if we're recovering on time to have at least pretty decent quality training, you're probably in the clear. And then the, there's going to be minor differences. So still experiment, but know that just not to make the two big mistakes. Yeah. If someone's like, yeah, man, here's an example. People will train arms once a week. Bro, what are you doing? Your biceps take seven days to recover? Bullshit. And they're like, well, yeah, but like no buts, man. Train them twice a week. I promise you get better results. All the research says you will. And then yeah. you do it and you actually do get better results. But does that mean you need to train biceps six times a week with 10 sets each time? That may not go well for you. And then your biceps won't get bigger, won't get stronger. And then you get elbow tendonitis and you're like, well, I found out what too much was. So yeah. it's, it's all about individualization, experimentation, and just knowing that you're in the gym to do two things. Push yourself hard and challenge yourself and also not go overboard. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And obviously recovery is a really important variable to assess, which can be difficult to assess because it is influenced by so many extraneous variables too, right? Like if you had a week of shitty sleep, it's not your training, right? Uh, yes. This is, go ahead. Sorry, I have to say something. If you are serious about hypertrophy training, you make sure that your life is not extraneously stochastic. You get your sleep, you get your food. Because listen, if you tell me, hey man, I'm really worried about my volume landmarks, I want to see what MEV is, and I'm like, I start telling you blah, 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 and you're like, yeah, but seems to me like it's really, I've actually had this debate with several folks online. They'll say, I've been told before, like your volume landmarks don't mean anything. And I'm like, okay, so interesting, why not? And they're like, because like how much sleep you get and how much food you get can change them completely. And I'm like, what kind of undedicated asshole are you that your sleep and food are even part of the question? Do you think Mr. Olympia is like, yeah, man, bad week of training, no sleep, no food? No, it's their job. So like, if you're really serious enough to start counting volumes, you had better be sleeping in it. And of course, to your point, sometimes you don't get it right. And then sometimes your volume changes, but you got to get it as right as you can. 
because, you know, at the end of the day, like you want everything to be as stable as possible to control what you can control. And if everything's not as stable as possible, well, yeah, then the whole thing's a fucking wash, you know? And the the last point to make here, because I think, you know, oftentimes when people in the general public listen to stuff like this, sometimes they have more questions than answers. I have more questions than answers, right? (laughs) Sure. Um, (laughs) And it comes down to like, well, how do I know if I'm doing uh, enough or not? And I think a really simple way to think about this, and this is what Chester was trying to bring up, is like, if objectively you get stronger at a faster rate with this amount of work compared to that amount of work, for you, it makes sense that this amount of work may be better. What do you think about that? I think it's great. I think it's super important to know that the most objective way to measure strength that is the most pertinent to this is mesocycle to mesocycle, not week to week. Because if you don't get much stronger week to week, you can actually be building crap loads of muscle, but just accumulating a lot of fatigue that masks the strength. As soon as you deload, your deadlift jumps by 20 pounds and you're like, oh shit, my erectors did grow. I just didn't know it at the time. But if mesocycle to mesocycle, month to month to month, sets of uh, five sets is making Chester stronger over six months, and visibly bigger than eight or nine or 10 sets were, yeah, of course that's the right answer. It'd be crazy to deny that. Like, no, trust me, bro, more volume is better. But like, but it's definitely not for me. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, you'll see tons of studies which give you volume amounts and averages and all this stuff. There are mm-hmm. so many difficult ways, difficult road bumps, speed bumps between taking that volume literature and applying it to yourself. These are recreationally trained undergraduates. They barely train at all. They come to a research study. They only train two or three times a week. They train one muscle on their body. There's yeah, a study yeah. on quadriceps. That's all they trained is quads. Look, if all you trained is quads, yeah, you could recover from way more sets. But if you do whole body, if you're advanced, et cetera, it all comes down to this. Whatever volume you're training at now, try training with substantially less. And as Chester said, pr- monitor your long-term strength and physique. If you get the same result, eh, no big deal. Nobody lost, nobody found. If you get a much better result, well, shit, there you go. If you get a worse result, you know the answer is that you should have done something else with your volume. And then after that, don't just quit. Try a little bit of a higher volume than you normally do. See how things go. Just by playing around on the margins like that and being attentive, you're going to realize what works well for you and what doesn't in pretty short order. And then nobody can tell you different because it's your body. Like if someone said, hey, Mike, you need to be doing 20 sets of chest, I'd be like, bro, I do eight sets of chest a week and that is so much more than enough for me i can barely recover mm-hmm. i did three sets of dips in my last chest workout and one set of close grip incline and my chest got overlapping soreness from my workout today i had to modify my workout today because my chest was yeah. still sore T- tell me to do more volume i'm just gonna be like joey where where yeah. do i put it do you want me to be so sore that i can't even get a full stretch yeah. on the back so you'd be like well that doesn't make any sense so it's what you can do play around with your own stuff, find out how you get the best results over time, and then you're learning stuff. Yeah, Mike, I could talk to you for another two hours at least, dude. I'll have to have you on again sometime in the future. I'd love that. Um, I appreciate you a ton. I think you have some incredible insight and explain everything so beautifully where it's like really easy to understand. It's a difficult thing to do. I, I try to do it with some nuanced topics with nutrition, and it's difficult to explain complex topics. Well, thank you. Um, I think you do this better than anybody in the hypertrophy space. Would you mind, um, letting the listeners know where they can connect with you and if they want to check out your app, how to do so as well? Yeah. So just go on YouTube, Renaissance Periodization, or just type in my last name. Neither one of those things are tough. 
uh, hard to spell. Just kidding. Impossible. How many S's are in Renaissance? I, I don't know. So uh, uh, RP Strength on YouTube is a good way to find us. Uh, Dr. Mike, Mike Isretel, whatever on YouTube. You'll find the channel. I'm all over it. And then just start watching stuff. And if you like it, at the end of each video, there's a link in the description to try the Hypertrophy app or you just go to our website through there and try the Diet Coach app. And if you like the apps, then great because I make money. And, well, everyone knows my, my butlers get the money. They buy more Lamborghinis. And, and that's how I live my life. One Lamborghini at a time. Yeah. And and even aside from the RP channel, uh, I've been really enjoying your uh, Making Progress channel as well. Oh, thanks. A lot of yeah. people tell me they hate me for that channel. Really? But, you know, critics are so tough nowadays. Yeah. Anything to get more of Dr. Mike, I'm all about. <laughs> <laughs> all right, brother. Well, That's what my ex-wife said. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, my man, again, have a wonderful day. And it was awesome connecting with you. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much. Take care.